We're gonna get into Alex's story. He owns Town Beer Co. with his wife. He was kind enough to bring beer for us for this interview, so. There we go. We just sprayed the microphone. That should be good. Cheers. Cheers, brother. All right, this is the Yield Coach Show, Season 1, Episode 11. Every episode, we bring you dynamic entrepreneurs, real estate investors, business leaders, and inspirational guests ready to open up, share their story, the good, the bad, the ugly, so you can learn lessons, gain advantages, and accelerate your own success. I'm your host, Ian Brown. I'm joined here today by Alex Moldovan. Alex is a U.S. Navy veteran. Alex is a Jacksonville University alumni. He got his bachelor's in science in 2016 and his MBA in 2017. He is the current vice chair of the Jacksonville Planning Commission. He is the treasurer of Murray Hill Preservation Association. He is father to Avi, husband to Priya, a handsome devil, and the president of Town Beer Co., Alex Moldovan, thank you for being a guest on our show. Hey, thank you for having me, Ian. All right, first things first, so Town Beer Co. with his wife. He was kind enough to bring beer for us for this interview, so there we go. We just sprayed the microphone. That should be good. Cheers. Cheers, brother. Ah, and uh, I am going to let Alex actually speak, don't worry, but Alex, <laughs> Alex has brought us Lazy River, so our last guest was Brock Flores of Fishweir. This is a local beer. I'll let Alex do most of the local beer talk. But so today we're enjoying tall beers from Fishweir Brewery. <laughs> Cheers, Cheers. Fishweir. Thanks, Brock. <laughs> Drop the affiliate link. All right. Absolutely. Now, Alex, we're just going to start nice and easy. Sure. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. So I think I told you earlier I can get long-winded really, really easily and really quickly. So um, I actually, I grew up in the mountains of Virginia, very small, rural, uh, blue collar community. Uh, my father was a subcontractor. Um, he's a bricklayer. His father was also a Mason. I was probably next in line to be a Mason, uh, but I joined the Navy at age 19, right after uh, high school. Uh, I was actually stationed out in California, spent most of my time in the Persian Gulf during Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. Um, I was an egress technician, which is a fancy mouthful for an ejection seat mechanic uh, on F-18s. Uh, after the Navy, moved to Jacksonville, enrolled in Jacksonville University's uh, undergrad program in sustainability. Uh, upon graduating that, literally two days later, rolled right into their MBA program. Uh, and I, I was brewing at Veterans United Craft Brewery during this time. Uh, eventually, I was promoted to uh, representative for the brewery, so I stepped into more of a sales role for them. Um, during this time, I was working on my business plan for Town Beer Company. Uh, my wife and I put our heads together, uh, decided that um, you know the, the beer industry is ultra competitive. There is just a sea of beers on the shelves in every grocery store and every beer shop. Uh, we decided to take a different route. Instead of being competitive, we decided to be complementary to the industry. Um, and we opened up Town Beer Company, which is a craft beer shop that's dedicated to advocating for local breweries. So figured we'd help them out a little bit, pull their product down the line, uh, sing their praises, and, and get the word out for them. And you're still a, a young man. Did you go straight from um, high school into the military? I did. I, I probably had about, uh, it was probably about seven months after graduation. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So you go right into the Navy. So actually, we've got back-to-back -back Navy veterans, but your story is a little different than Brock's, where you went right in, nearly right in after high school, uh, where, where Brock, I remember, he did his, his undergrad, he did his dental, and then he went and did his service to repay his loans. Um, right. So um, the egress technician, sustainability, give us a couple things, if you would, that you might have picked up from your military service that are applicable to your, uh, your business leadership now. Sure. So I, uh, probably at the age of 22, uh, was promoted to petty officer in the Navy, uh, which typically uh, from E1 to E3, um, you're being told what to do quite a lot. Once you hit E4, which is petty officer, um, they start to give you a little bit more of a leadership role. So at age 22, I was tossed into a supervisory position for the line division which the line division is the department that takes care of the squadron's airplanes. Uh, they do all the inspections for pre-flight and post-flight. You greet the pilot, you get the jet ready to go for them. 
Uh, and so anyways, I, I was, uh, I got promoted to a supervisory role, um, and I was in charge of about 20 different, uh, uh, sailors at that time on the, uh, USS Carl Vinson. And, uh, my first deployment was on the USS Ronald Reagan. Excellent. Yeah. So, um, is it true? I've, we've heard obviously in other interviews that, you know, you move up and you gain responsibility very quickly in the Navy and, you know, the equipment that you're on is very expensive. I imagine that gives you like a a lot of respect and responsibility for like structure and process and like the value of the mechanical things you're working with. Did you kind of gather the same benefits? 100%. I mean, everything you do in the military has a standard operating procedure. I'm surprised there's not a standard operating procedure for getting dressed and washing your hands. It's, it's very structured and for good reason. Um, a lot of the jets that we work on are multi-million dollar jets, upwards of $30 million. Um, so to have a bunch of 18 to 25 year olds working on them, it's extremely structured and for good reason. Um, I heard Brock say with his episode that, uh, that that's really transferable to uh, the brewing industry because everything that you do, you're, you're working with very expensive equipment. So absolutely. All right. So coming out of the Navy experience, you go into Jacksonville University. Did you have like the GI Bill or did you? you I did. Thank God. And I mean that, you know. There's many reasons why I joined the Navy, but up there in the top three was to help with school being paid for. So, um, like I said, I, I grew up in a blue-collar family. Uh, I'd say that education wasn't of the utmost importance. Um, so, with that being said, I didn't have a huge support group on telling me how to get involved in college or how to pay for it. So, mm -hmm. the Navy helped me out with that uh, in, a, in the best kind of way. Um, I actually used my GI Bill for my undergrad and my MBA. At least you had the foresight going in to say, it sounds like you had the foresight that you'll go into the to the Navy and you'll come out and get that education covered. I think some people almost benefit from not having maybe like the guidance or resources. They just know, look, no one's covering this for me. Right. I need to put together my own plan. Yeah. And, and you use the military to do that. Certainly. And, uh, you know, something that was a really good incentive with the GI Bill is that if you make less than a C, if, if you get a grade less than a C, you have to pay for that class out of pocket. Mm. So really, really gets you in the books and make sure you know what you're doing and, and uh, do it the right way. Might have to leave the bars before 2 a.m. Yeah, I think mm. so. Yeah. Mm. All right. So I heard you say sustainability. Now, I generally know what you're talking about, but for the audience, what's the sustainability program that you, that you took? Sure. So, you know, when I was getting out of the Navy, you've got a good... Uh, six months to start preparing. And the Navy kind of puts you in programs to start preparing for the transition into civilian life. Um, but part of that preparation is figuring out what you're going to do. Are you going to go right into the workforce and try to uh, translate your skills from the Navy into some sort of career? Or are you going to use your GI Bill and enroll in some schooling? Um, so I decided I wanted to go to school. My first choice was Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, California. Um, they have an environmental engineering program that I was really interested in. Um, but come to find out, Priya and I were, were uh, talking about, you know, our, our future goals and our plans. And, uh, and we were just looking at the cost of living in California, and it's, it's not feasible. It's extremely expensive out there. Um, so to be a full-time student and Priya being a, uh, a recently newly graduate uh, from UNF, we just thought that maybe California wasn't the right move quite yet. Um, so Priya brought up the idea. She said, well, have you considered Jacksonville? So she had moved down here to go to school. Um, and I said, you know, I've never really considered Jacksonville. Tell me a little bit about it. And she's like, well, you know, the, the economy is, is, uh, very healthy. Cost of living is really affordable. It's a developing city. Uh, it's got a lot of things going for it. And there's two universities to choose from. So I looked into both universities, UNF and JU. Um, JU had the sustainability program. Keeping in mind that I wanted to do environmental engineering, I really started studying into this program. Sustainability is the balance between environmentalism, economics, and social sciences. So that really interested me. I, I, you know, I had never really considered a program that had all three of those things rolled into one. Um, but the way it, it kind of works is, you know, if you're only focusing on environmentalism, you may not be realistically looking at what that might do to the economy or the way that humans live their everyday life. And so I like that about sustainability. It said pretty much, here's, here's a little analogy. It's like, if you know the gasoline automobile is bad for the environment, 
you can't just pull the plug on that industry and outlaw gasoline automobiles because one, our economy relies pretty heavily on it. And two, the way that we work socially, the way that we operate as humans, we heavily rely on the gasoline automobile. So that analogy alone really made me fall in love with sustainability. It's, it's more of a all-encompassing, mm-hmm. uh, uh, more of a broad scope rather than just being finely, narrowly tailored on environmentalism. Yeah, and nothing against the um, the mainstream, more environmentalism movement, but sure. it sounds like you're you're the culture of the program you came through at JU. It's more like pragmatic, absolutely common sense. Yeah, it, it puts a lot of things in balance. Sure, the sustainability. I think we get it. Um, now you come out and you roll. You said it was like days, and all of a sudden you're in the MBA program. Yeah. Um, so there were multiple reasons why I rolled right into it. Um, one, I just wanted to keep the momentum. I think that, you know, I, I know plenty of people who took five, six, seven years between their undergrad and their graduate degree, um, but I'm the type of person that has to strike while the iron's hot. If I go and take a vacation for two or three years, chances are I'm not coming back to it. So um, that's one reason I wanted to keep the momentum. Uh, number two was that the way the GI Bill works is you have 36 months of enrollment to use it. So I did my undergrad in three years. Now that's not that's not 36 months of enrollment. That's three. Uh, how, how would you word this? Uh, three uh, years in terms of semesters at JU. So I still had exactly 12 months of my program left. And Jacksonville University has a accelerated MBA program that's exactly 12 months. So I just Perfect. jumped. It, it just it, it made sense. So I just jumped right into the MBA program. So I, I graduated on a Saturday from my undergrad. That Monday, I started the MBA. Now, obviously, we're going to get into your town beer company, starting your own business, and there's some steps before that. But I would imagine, even though the MBA was kind of like a cherry on top or icing or whatever you want to call it, I bet there were a lot of things you gleaned from the MBA program that were like transferable skills. Absolutely. Um you know, luckily I was working on my business plan for Town Beer Company while going through my MBA. So I owe a lot of my professors a huge thanks, a huge debt of gratitude. They would sit down with me often and review my, my business plan. Um, they would give me some feedback on things that might make the, uh, the company a little bit more accessible. Um, you know, the, my main concern was making sure that we were scalable. I didn't want to just tether ourselves to one neighborhood, one city. Um, that kind of feeds into our branding. You know, we, when we were first coming up with Town Beer Company, we were very, uh, when we were working on the marketing, we were very hyper-local. We were talking about Jacksonville beer this, Duval that, Calford, Bold, everything to do with Jacksonville. Um, and eventually, Priya and I both just, we had a light bulb go off. We said, wait a minute, we could take this model of doing only this city's beer and do it in any city that has a vibrant beer scene, you know? So we came up with Town Beer Company. It can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like it. It's portable. Yeah. It's it's a great name. I love your name. Yeah. And and so the, the professors at JU really helped me out with just kind of keeping myself open to new ideas for the business. Very helpful. That is kind of cool to go through. I didn't think about the fact that you're going through your MBA program while launching your business. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like you're your capstone program almost. It's experiential Absolutely, learning. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's unique. A lot of people, so like, just as a parallel, when I was in law school, I was a little bit older. I didn't I didn't go until I was almost 30. And um, I'm sitting there in class. I was already in and out of real estate transactions before law school. My, my fellow students might have like never signed. They first certainly not purchased a property, most of them. When they were in college, their parents co-signed their lease. They never read it. They really hadn't transacted in any way. Sure. So, like, their real-world knowledge of contracts was, like, what you call a contract of adhesion. When you have, like, it scrolls the screen at the very bottom. There's a checkbox. You have to hit it just to move on. Nobody reads it. Right. Like, they're like, well, there's a contract. They never really analyzed any terms. Sure. And um, if they're buying a car, or like I said, a lease or whatever, their parents were pretty much handling it. So, I always felt like I had a leg up because I had already bought and sold property some vehicles. I had, you know, a child. I was just more in the real world. So right. here you are in your MBA program, you know, launching town beer right through it all. I'm sure you felt like you had a real leg up over the, your fellow student. Certainly. It felt good. Um, also, it truly helped that uh, that I was also brewing and, and uh, working in sales for the brewery at the time. So 
Um, I owe a lot of gratitude to Ron Gamble and Veterans United as well because they, they taught me the industry from ground up. I'm glad you brought that up. So that's uh, kind of the natural navigation of your story. So right. let's go ahead. You, you got the NBA benefits and you can touch on them as they apply, but you jump into Veterans United because we all want to know where you got this beer acumen and all this, all this sure. Uh, skill. Sure. So something I kind of leave off my resume is that um, I interned during my undergrad at an environmental laboratory. So I was an analyst on probably 15 or 16 different analyses. And about five of those analyses were um, distillations. So the way an environmental laboratory works is uh, manufacturers who produce anything larger than a cheeseburger, they pretty much have to give samples of their wastewater. They have a catch somewhere within their infrastructure and they have to submit samples of their wastewater monthly or whatever the periodic, uh, whatever the EPA predicts, they have to submit these, these samples. And they come to an environmental laboratory to test for different metals, different uh, contaminants, and uh, they have to be within a certain guideline. So I was distilling samples from a lot of different uh, paper mills in South Georgia, uh, North Jacksonville. Um, and so the distillation process was so cool to me. It kind of blew my mind. I'm like, well, wait a minute. This is how spirits are distilled. You know, you're taking a mash, you ferment it, and then you distill the spirits off of it. So I fell in love with that whole process. And what I wanted to do was start distilling spirits. Now, it might be easier these days, but back when I was first looking into this, um, in order to get a distillation apparatus, you have to be a scientist or someone with a license to purchase something like that. I guess apparently they are misused in many different ways these days. So I'll leave that out of the podcast. But I hit a wall essentially when it came to distilling. And I said, you know what? Let me just revisit this new hobby that I'm trying to get involved in. Part of it is you have to make a mash, which is essentially beer. So I said, you know what? I like beer. Honest to God, I like beer more than spirits. Why don't I just get into brewing some beer at home, you know? So I started brewing beer at home and uh, really fell in love with it. And I started talking to Priya about wanting to open a homebrew supply store. And we really kind of got into that. And I started talking more and more about it. And I said, Jacksonville's got a pretty vibrant uh, craft beer community. I said, how cool would it be to open a homebrew supply store next to a craft brewery? A lot of people who go in and enjoy craft beer uh, probably also would would either like to learn how to brew beer or already do brew their own beer at home. So we started heading down that route. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I had just seen an article for Veterans United Craft Brewery. They were just about to open. This is 2014. Um, they were just about to open. And so I sent, keep in mind, I just separated from the Navy less than a year prior. So I sent an email out to Ron Gamble, the owner of Veterans United, and I said, hey, I respect your, your business model. I'm newly separated from Naval Aviation. I see that uh, you were in Naval Aviation. I said, I would really like to sit down with you and just kind of pick your brain about opening a business, you know? He was very receptive, uh, told me, come in next week. He'll sit down with me, review what I'm talking about, my concept, my idea, and he would give me some feedback. So uh, he was very generous. Uh, I met up with Ron at his brewery. We sat down, started spitballing my ideas for a uh, for a, uh, a homebrew supply store, and he was into it. He liked it. He said, "You know what? I like I like your energy. I like where you're going with this. I'd like to start meeting with you every Friday to go over your business plan." And I said, "I would absolutely appreciate your mentorship." <clears throat> Excuse me. And so we started meeting every Friday, and eventually Ron said, uh, "He said, Alex, you know what?" He said. Um, I don't mean any disrespect by this. I'm going to float this position by you. I think you deserve to know. I think it would do you a lot of good to see the ins and outs of the, of the industry. He said, I've got a position opened up for a bartender. And so I went home and I chatted with Priya about it. And so this is me talking with Priya about leaving my position as a laboratory analyst to go bartend at a craft brewery. So she thought I was crazy. She thought I had a future in environmental science because I'm going to school for sustainability. Um, but I told her, I said, this is a foot in the door opportunity to learn an industry that you've got to start at the bottom rung of the ladder. You don't just step into craft beer and become a head brewer, you know? So um, I convinced Priya that this was a foot in the door opportunity and it truly was. Um, I started bartending at Veterans United. Uh, I continuously got caught in the back of the house looking at the brewing equipment. 
Ron told me they had a, a pretty strict policy. You know, the back of the house was for people who were brewers or assistant brewers. And unfortunately, bartenders can't be back there. It's a safety concern. You're not trained on the equipment, the chemicals, the you name it. And so I understood that. Um, I ended up asking Ron. I said, hey, I said, uh, you and I both know that I truly want to be in the back of the house. I want to learn beer. I want to learn how to brew beer. He kept that in mind. A couple months passed. He pulled me aside and he said, hey, I'd like to have you start coming in the back on, on Wednesdays and just helping out with the cellaring and cleaning equipment, things of that nature. And I was just head over heels. That was my, I could finally go home and tell Priya, I told you this is paying off. Started as a bartender, worked my way into the back. I didn't have a title. I was just back there doing odds and ends, uh, just trying to be humble and have humility and work from the bottom. Um, I did that for a few months. Ron pulled me aside and promoted me to assistant brewer. I did that for a few months. Rod, Ron pulled me to the side again, promoted me to brewer. Um, I did that for probably, I want to say, five or six months. And then he pulled me aside once more and he said, Alex, hey, I got to tell you. He said, you're a people person. He said, I think you'd be better suited being uh, our representative, going out, being the face of the company, helping with sales. I was head over heels about that, too. Um, so it, it was a perfect opportunity. I got to learn how people consume craft beer, how the product's produced, how it gets packaged, how it goes to distribution, and how it ends up in retail. Um, so so I, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Veterans United. They taught me the entire supply chain in a matter of two years. And it sounds like um, it totally changed your business model, too, because you you and Priya were considering a supply store because right. you had a craft beer passion or a, a homebrew passion. Sure. I actually think your idea, I know you didn't do it, but like the the brewery with the supplies next door, I, maybe somebody will pull that off eventually. That's kind of clever. But so it changes it changes your view because now you've actually been into tap room sales. Now you then you've gone back a house, you've brewed the beer, all these different right. kinds of beer, you know the ins and outs, and then you've gone out and kind of I don't want to say sold the the flavor profiles, but you've learned how to speak the language, you know everything about the ins and outs of the industry. So, at that point, how did you I know what's going to happen. You're you're going to leave Veterans United, but how did you decide what you wanted to do? So, I think after learning the entire supply chain, how beer's produced, the margins, um, how it gets marked up from the supplier to distribution, then marked up again to retail, marked up once again for consumer, um, I just started realizing, I, I, I said, you know, I went back to our business plan, and I'm looking at the homebrew supply store, and I just started doing some simple calculations. I was thinking, you know, for a homebrew supply store, you have to have thousands of dollars worth of equipment on your floor that may never sell. Let's be honest, a lot of people buy this stuff online these days. Um, I think the bread and butter would have been uh, selling the, the actual ingredients for beer, which you can imagine the margins are kind of slim on that. I don't want to be insulting to anybody out there that has a homebrew supply store, but it's kind of slim on that. And I think that um, a lot of your audience that you capture are people that want to come in and just kind of hang out and chat beer which God bless them. That's awesome. You know, but I think most people with home brewing, they're probably ordering their things online. Mm -hmm. So I saw the writing on the wall and I said, you know what, maybe this isn't the best model, you know? Um, also during my time as a representative for the, for the brewery, um, I was going into a lot of different establishments and this is circa 2016. Uh, we had 10 breweries here in Jacksonville um, so with 10 breweries, each brewery producing, you know, anywhere from 10 to 15 product lines, I was going into different restaurants and bars, and I'm noticing that these restaurants and bars have I-10 IPA from Intuition, which is a fabulous beer, uh, John Boat, uh, Duke's Brown Ale, but those three were the only local beers that had any real estate around here. Um, all the other breweries, they just, they were not represented on these tap lists, you know, and I just thought it was wild. I was going in and I had success with sales, I would say with, with Veterans United, but I was starting to get this general consensus of, well, we've never heard of you. So why would we take the risk? And I was just going back and forth all the time. I was saying, well, look, you guys have I-10, you have Dukes, you have John Boat. Do those sell well for you? And they said, those are our best sellers. And I said, that's right. You know, the rest of your list is from California, Colorado, up north, you know. I said, but people like beer when it's fresh, you know. So the only way you can get beer as fresh as possible is to drink it local. 
So that was my pitch everywhere I was going. I'm pouring them fresh beer. I said, this was canned two days ago. Check this out. They'd sample it, fall in love with it. But the general consensus was people were not willing to take a risk on something they weren't super familiar with. So this just kind of stunned me. Priya and I, we started chatting about it. And I said, honey, what, what do we do when we go to Austin, Texas? Soon as we get our stuff in the Airbnb, as soon as we go out to the Strip, I'm looking for a brewery, I'm looking for a bar, and I want to try what's brewed locally. Everywhere we ever go, any restaurant we would eat at, I would say, what do you have that's local? And so I just kept falling back on that. I was thinking, you know, I always want what's local. And I think anybody who likes craft beer, if they go travel somewhere, the first question they're going to ask is, what do you have that's local? So it dawned on me. I said, why is there not a craft beer shop? And let me let me say this. We had two or three craft beer shops here in Jacksonville that were highly successful. Some of my favorite places to hang out, Alewife, Beer 30. Mm-hmm. Um and I just started thinking, I said, they have such good success, and they serve beer from, I think, uh, Alewife is North North America, Beer 30s from anywhere, you name it. They have so much success with serving beer, you know, and having it uh, very niche into the craft industry. I said, why is there not a place that does nothing but local? It's as fresh as it gets. You keep the monetary circulation closed and hyper-local. Um, and honestly, I started leaning on my undergrad. I was thinking, you know what, sustainability, if you created a model like this, you're reducing the demand for beer being trucked all over the place. You're keeping it super local. Mm-hmm. So Town Beer Company kind of spiraled out of that. That's interesting. The um, I didn't realize that nobody, when you opened town, I didn't realize that nobody else was doing a a local, like Nothing your town concept. Yeah. I do... Um, I do. I'm familiar with those other establishments you referenced, um, like even like the brew or the or the town. I'm sorry, the beer thirty. Thank you, yeah. beer thirty and alewife, and and I go to those establishments sometimes too. Um, but I think that your idea to get something local, and when I got on this topic a little bit with Brock when he interviewed, but it's almost a way to, it's almost like a beer tourism where by by going somewhere new, you get to like get the flavors, the culture the conversation through the brewery scene. And you're almost like folding in, I don't want to take anything away, the Florida, right? It's it's Florida? Yeah. Okay. So you've got all Florida beers, and it's almost like you can travel Florida's beer scene right at your tap In one spot, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I mean, I think that anybody who's from Jacksonville or who has ever visited Jacksonville, um, they can attest to this. We are very carved up into boroughs, and... Most people treat bridges as a boundary that they're not willing to cross. You know what I mean? So everybody sticks to their little neighborhoods. And if you're trying to go to the beaches, that's a whole day trip. And you might do it once or twice a year, but it's not very often, you know. Mm-hmm. So I started thinking, you know, we at the time had 10 breweries. Now we've got upwards of 20. Um, I just started thinking, you know what, why is there not a satellite location that highlights all of these beers? They're local. They're fresh. Um yeah, so I mean, it just it, it all just kind of started coming together. Um, and additionally, I, I'll go back to what I said before. This is a hyper-competitive industry, and I don't think that a lot of people like to admit that. Um, we have a very friendly, com- competitive type of culture here in Jacksonville. But the truth is, there are so many breweries and so little people that they have to decide where they're going to spend their money. Most people pick their favorite brewery and they're very loyal to it, you know? And I think that's the truth. I saw that when I first moved here with Intuition, uh, Bold City. They've got their regulars and they are loyal. And uh, so, uh, you know, I I think that uh, I started looking at that and I said, why would I try to go toe-to-toe with these guys that are the OGs, the forefathers of Jacksonville beer? Why even try to do that? Why try to compete for shelf space? When you go to Publix, I mean, it's just a sea of beer um, it's tough. It's tough to get into this industry. So, I started coming up with a model that was a little bit more complementary. Pull their product down the line. Help them. They'll help me. Mm-hmm. Rather than go toe to toe. I think that's where that came from. And I guess you don't. And correct me if I'm wrong. I guess you don't run into the same problems where, like, let's say you're a restaurant and you have just a uh, maybe six taps or ten taps, and you're like, okay, well, I, I gotta have my Bud Light and my Ultra and maybe like. Bud Heavy or Michelob or Amberbach or something, and then maybe I'll leave room for like one, two, three local craft taps. Sure. You you get to say, to hell with all that, I can just stack my tap room with just the best local that I, or regional that I want. Right. Versus like even a large restaurant is a little hamstringed on their tap space. Sure. Um, 
All right, so I'm going to let you, since you, you get to do most of the talking, but I'll let, let you have your beer there. Um, so let's go a little bit into the real estate side, kind of um, how you picked your location, if there's any lessons learned. Obviously, it's a commercial transaction, you know, the build-out, finding a location, figuring out how you're going to floor plan. And anything on that side you'd like to share on the real estate sure. side? So we were actually, Priya and I were living in the Brooklyn Riverside Apartments. They were brand spanking new. They had just built them. Um, she was working a nine to five as a social media specialist on the South side. So she's deep into the corporate American lifestyle. I'm working at Veterans United. So double income, no children, um, living in this nice apartment complex in Riverside. We're building this business plan and we're trying to decide, you know, where do we want to do this? You know, um, we spent most of our weekends in Murray Hill and this was back when Murray Hill is nothing like it is today. It was extremely grassroots. It had, and it's, and it still is. Don't let me sound like it's not anymore. But it had such a special feeling to it because you could feel it. It was, it was on the rise. You know, you had Vagabond Coffee number one. That was my go-to coffee spot. You had Community Loaves. They bake all their own bread. Uh, delicious, delicious uh, breakfast and brunch. And then you had uh, Moon River Pizza and. I think Bold Bean was still there. Because they were across the street on Edgewood at right. that time. Yep. yep, Bold Bean had a roastery there. And it was it was really cool. You go into this place, the roasteries in the back. They had one little bar with four stools at it. It wasn't a, I wouldn't call it a coffee shop. This was primarily for roasting. And you'd go in there and you could stand at the bar and have a cup of coffee or a shot of espresso. Nothing like what you'd see in most coffee shops. But nonetheless, it was a special feeling. You know, you could tell that this was grassroots. It was... Uh, this place was just blossoming from young entrepreneurs. It wasn't, this wasn't a place built on money. You know, these mm -hmm. people didn't have deep pockets and big backings. This was truly grassroots. And that's where Priya and I were. You know, we weren't looking to bring on investors. We weren't looking to take on a huge, crazy loan. We wanted to be lean and mean and open up for, for a very low cost, you know. So, so you find you find Murray Hill. You're already spending some of your leisure or a lot of your leisure time there. Absolutely, um, we're so, loving Murray Hill. So you're loving Murray Hill, and you're like, this is where you want to find a spot. How, how did you end up finding your current location? So we're looking at our our business plan, and we said, well, look, if we want to open a business, there's there's a sequence of things we need to do before we ever even break ground. First step was stop renting. That we could just see our both of our paychecks were going towards a crazy expensive rent that we'll never see again. We weren't building equity. It was a mess. We said, "Look, first step, we need to get into a neighborhood that we can afford, you know?" So we were realistic. And Murray Hill again was just welcoming welcome, welcoming us with open arms. Um at the time this is uh early 2016, you could purchase a 3132 in Murray Hill for 160,000 or less. Um, so it was awesome. You know, you're looking at Riverside where, you know, the average cost then was probably 300 grand for a home. Avondale, you're looking at half a million and upward. And then Murray Hills just nestled in right at the top, right between those two neighborhoods. And you could find these perfect little mid-century post-war homes for less than 200 grand. So we found a beautiful little mid-century home right there in Murray Hill. Um, so we purchased our house there first. So we checked that first box. We're no longer renters that are just cashing our check in on, on a place that we don't own. So got our mortgage going in Murray Hill. Um, moved in in August of 2016. Fell in love with the neighborhood. We were already in love with the neighborhood. And we started talking. We said, well, why wouldn't we consider this neighborhood for our business? You know, we've got coffee, there's pizza, there's breakfast. There's no craft beer. There truly was no craft beer at the time. Um, you had a couple dive bars if you wanted to go get a Miller Lite or a PBR, which is good, you know, right place at the right time. Yep. I'll never knock that, you know. But there was no place to ride your bike up to, walk to with your stroller, and go have a craft beer in a nice, clean, safe environment that's family friendly. So we started looking at different, uh, different leasings that were online. And I found this one that was right off of Edgewood. That The address is actually Edgewood, but it's right around the corner on Mayflower. And so we, we go there and we visit it with the landlord. And I'm looking at it. And it's pretty bare bones. It's actually, it used to be a jujitsu studio. So open floor plan. 
Uh, there's really nothing to it. There, it's a wide open room. It was shaped like a square with a little restroom in the back right corner. I'm sorry, back left corner. And, uh, and it was just, it was a blank canvas. So we started looking at it and it had exposed uh, rafters. And I was playing hardball with the landlord and she wasn't having it. Very tough lady. Um, so I let it kind of simmer for six months and we started looking elsewhere. We went and looked at A's Tavern. I guess that place was for sale for a short while. Um, we looked at several different locations and none of them hit us like that first location. So I ended up calling the landlord back up and the, and the whole thing I was playing hardball with is I said, Hey, I said, we are really interested in this location, but what I would want is a grace period for build out. And she said, well, how long do you think build out's going to take? And I said, I, I don't think it would take any longer than five or six months. She was not having it. She said, no, I've got to charge you rent right off the bat. So after six months of playing hardball with her, I came back to her and I said, hey, you know what? I said, are you still pretty, pretty firm on not doing grace period for build out? She said, there's no way. And I said, well, then let's do it. You know, I said, this is the spot. I said, we've been shopping around for close to seven months now. I said, none of these locations have ever felt so warm and fuzzy like this one. So this is the one. So we signed the lease and the rest is history. We started build out, probably took us about six months. Um, which we were very naive. I thought that uh, I thought maybe three months tops, but uh, turns out that the legal process with uh, the planning department, as you know, as a planning mm -hmm. commissioner, it just takes much longer than we expected. I remember um, so Alex and Priya's town town beer co is on. Technically, it's on Edgewood, but you access from Mayflower in Jacksonville and Murray Hill. And I used to live on Mayflower, and we would we would go down Mayflower and kind of turn on Edgewood and see what's happening on the strip. And we would go by Bold Bean, like you're saying, and they'd be roasting coffee, a couple stools. You could grab a you could grab a brew across the street. I think it was like Magnolia's initially, and they were yeah, doing like yeah. a, a chicken and waffle concept. It's now evolved into an Irish bar. Um, but we were kind of cheering everything along, trying to figure out what's coming next. And then there you were. We could peek in. I remember when it was the dojo. The dojo's gone. And then that's where you and I first met. You might not remember, but you and Priya were doing manual labor. Might have been tile, might yeah. have been the bar. Right. And we just kind of knocked on the window and waved, and we just wanted to know what was going on. We shook your hand. You told us what you're doing. We couldn't have been more excited as beer enthusiasts and living 100 yards away. And that, I remember that's exactly how things started with us. And then we kind of watched you build it out along the way. And like everyone who sits here and talks about real estate projects, they always run longer than expected. Right. And you almost never come under budget. Sure. You know, you do it 10 times, you might get lucky on one. Um, so your concept's evolving. You ultimately, one, one lesson learned was, and, and you were fortunate, you were able to grab a space in a relatively competitive corridor that you passed on, waited six or seven months and came back to. In today's climate, a good retail location, it would have been snatched. Gone, so, right. so that's one thing where, the, you know, the real estate gods were on your side. You're building out. Let's talk about just how, you know, you hadn't launched a business, let alone a, a tap room. Let's let's just kind of talk about on the on the business side, you know, spreading the word, growing the business, kind of you know, penetrating the community, if you will. Right. Um, so I think our first act of actually trying to get the word out there, and we we kept it pretty hush hush for as long as we could because my main concern was I didn't want to start spreading the word until we felt like our branding was on point, uh, everything to do with our marketing, our website. We wanted all that to be ultra polished before we even mentioned it to anyone. Um, but the time came and actually uh, just past this past weekend was uh, the Riverside Craft Beer Festival yeah. uh, from the Riverside Rotary. Um, so we that was our first, so we're talking back in 2016. Um, this is, uh, yeah, 2016, we went to the Riverside uh, Rotary Craft Beer Festival and uh, we started just kind of passing out stickers and pins and mentioning to people that we're opening a craft beer shop in Murray Hill. And uh, and honestly, I think that, that uh, it, it brought in so many people for our grand opening. I, I never imagined it would, but our grand opening was bonkers. It was wide open. Um, and it was just Priya and myself back there working it. And Priya, she's a trooper. She had never stood behind a bar in her life. And she took that register and absolutely worked it and and uh looked like a pro it looked like she'd been doing it for years but we had a line out the door our grand opening forgive me you, no, you got to repeat me with well, the we question were, i i start heading off down different right. tracks we are, we, are, we also have a beer during the interview <laughs> that's the beer. A first. we had a we had a warm-up beer no but but you are answering the question because you know like 
the the market penetration, getting the word out. You know, you're a, you're a new concept. We already talked about it a few minutes ago. Nobody had even tried a Florida only local craft beer tap room. Right. You're in a um, a little bit of a niche market in your product, and then a little bit of a niche market in your location because Murray Hill is like. It's got like a gentrification ongoing, and it's a popular neighborhood. But again, it's not one of like the the big neighborhoods. Like everybody knows the San Marco, Riverside, Ortega, or some of the beaches or Southside. So if you go down to the beach and you tell somebody, I'm going to be hanging out in Murray Hill this weekend, I know because I used to live at the beach. Many people would say, well, where is Murray Where the Hill? heck is that? Oh, so, yeah. so you had some of these uphill battles to climb. But, um, but you were mentioning the website was tight. Everything looked good inside. Your branding was on point. You went to the craft beer festival, which, like you said, just happened. And I think they have over 200 vendors at that. Get your swag out and your stickers and pens. I'm impressed. You know, you filled the place. You made a good splash. And then, you know, from my outside eyes looking in, for you to be able to nail that splash and nail that opening, because you could have done everything you said to date, perfect website, perfect branding, great stickers, good look. If people didn't like the experience or didn't like, they wouldn't have come back. But obviously what you were able to do was, Fill that grand opening and build like a a loyal a loyal following, and maybe that's where I'll I'll kind of pass it over back to you. Sure. No, our, our following. I mean, we we owe the world to them. Um, I always tell anybody on our team. I say, look, these beers that we're serving, you can get at fifteen different establishments within half a mile. But what I think that we do different. No disrespect to anyone that's nearby. Um, we, we truly get to know our customers. We know their name. We know their dog's name. We know their children's names. We truly get to know them, you know, and, uh, and we pride ourselves on that. I think it's extremely important. Um, people work hard for their money, and if they're willing to come and spend their hard-earned dollar with us, it means the world to us, you know. This isn't just, this isn't just a hobby for us. We don't have huge backing. Um, this is our life, you know, so... Anybody who chooses to take their hard-earned dollar and bring it to Town Beer Company means the utmost to us. It truly does. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's where we've uh, we've always strived to try and separate ourselves. I think that uh, craft beer in the past has always been kind of a uh, a very edgy, curmudgeon type of, type of industry. You know what I mean? I, I remember going into breweries. I won't say the name. It wasn't in Jacksonville, so I'll, you know we're we're better about things than this. But uh, it was in another city, and we go into a brewery, and I walked up to the bar, and the gentleman behind the bar said to me, uh, he said, uh, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing well. How are you? He said, no. I said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, um, I'll, take the, uh, I'll take the lager. Okay. You know, so anyways, it was, yeah. <laughs> it was just such a rough... And I and this wasn't my first experience like this. Craft beer had such a you're not cool enough type of culture to it. You know what I mean? And I don't know if that's you know some people like that. They like to they like to earn their stripes and earn their coolness within a a scene. But to me, it just it hit me hard, and I was like, man, I work hard for my money, and if I'm coming here and spending mm-hmm. seven eight dollars for a beer, you could you could have the slightest bit of customer service, and I think that that would go far. You know. Yeah. And so we took that and we said, look, we don't want our customers to have to earn our, our friendship. We don't want them to have to earn their cool status within our place. If they're here, they're cool. I don't care their age. I don't care their, their background. If you're here hanging out at town, we accept you, we love you, and we appreciate you. And that, that's what we kind of built ourselves on. You don't have to have a, a hipster curled mustache and Birkenstocks to get Not in. at all. Now, you're welcome all. if you do, but, <laughs> right. yeah, but it's not a prerequisite. Right. Yeah. And you're right. I think that a word that came to mind is like pretentious, not at your place, but because the craft beer scene, you know, because I have been enjoying craft beer probably since its early onset, at least in the Southeast. And uh, yeah, it was a little more, a little more pretentious, a little bit more male, I think, too. It's a sure. kind of like oh, yeah. a boys club, kind of pretentious. And now like the scene is wide open. Right. Um, and you, you even see people put yourself included, like they might have a seltzer on tap, a cider on tap. Um, you might want to speak to your natural wine, but it's like the, the industry is even evolving, you know, it's not just like come and sit and have your triple IPAs and a stout and stare at the wall and and, and grunt into your beard. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that when, when I first started experiencing craft beer, if you didn't have a beard, you almost didn't fit in. You know what I mean? (laughs) I'm still trying to get through the You got it, man. You already (laughs) earned your keep. Um, but, but it's true. It was very masculine. Um, everything from, 
the seating, the aesthetic in the place, very rustic barrels, uh, concrete, extremely masculine, you know. So we we took everything from our atmosphere to our offerings, everything that we serve on tap and our and you know in the wine. We we tried to make this where it it was a catch all. Anybody's welcome there. I don't I don't care. You know, it, it's it's not just masculine neck beard. It's <laughs> we're looking to make sure everybody feels welcome. So. Um, we did a lot of tile work. We did, uh, uh, Priya really did a lot of our design. She focused a lot on lighting. Um, everything from our furniture is real nice, light and airy, um, which I think at the time was different for the industry. Um, you didn't see a whole lot of this going on. So I don't know if I can toot my own horn and say that. But, Do it. Uh, toot, but, toot. but yeah, I, th I think that uh, we, we tried to go with a little bit more of a feminine design, something and even that might sound off, but uh, we wanted to make sure everybody felt welcome. It's not just a spot for bearded men to come chug beers. Mm -hmm. But I am um, welcome, right? You're welcome. Okay, we'll yeah. allow you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, like you said, our draft list, we have 10, 10 beers on draft, and it's not just beer, I should say. Um, we have ciders, seltzers. We also keep a kombucha on tap. Everything on draft is hyper-local, brewed and manufactured right here in Jacksonville, strictly, not outside of Jacksonville. And then for our package product, we moved to Florida-wide. So when we first opened, uh, package product was not as as uh, available as draft, you know. So you might have had four of our 10 or 11 breweries that were actually canning their product and distributing it. So um, so we, we expanded to Florida-wide for our package. Um, and then we also uh, we started to bring on a wine program, and we stayed true to our local only, but... Unfortunately, Florida is not known very well for wine. Um, we just don't have the climate or the proper soil. I know muscadine grape uh, grows pretty well here in Florida, and we tried that. Uh, we tried some wines that were that were produced from muscadine, but it wasn't very well received. So we went back to the drawing board, and I said, well, look, if we can't do local wine, the next best thing would be to find wineries that are... Uh, uh, small and and mom and pop, you know, family owned wineries, if you will, and we discovered this whole new industry of natural wine. These wines are produced organically; um, they don't add anything to them. Um, they call them zero intervention, and typically they're produced by super small wineries, family owned wineries. So it just felt so right, you know. I mean, I think that's what the whole movement was behind craft beer is that. These are mom and pop breweries, you know, a lot of times the families are in there working them, uh, serving the beer that they produce everything from start to finish. And then we started discovering these wineries and they are from around the world, but they are still on that same program of, you know, they produce the, the grapes uh, organically. They're not spraying it with, with pesticides. A lot of times the, uh, the family that owns the winery are out there, out there harvesting the grapes and uh, pressing them and producing the wine. So uh, natural wine has actually uh, really taken off within our store. It's, it's a big part of our sales. Does the natural wine also stay within the Florida boundaries, or is that something you're okay no, with? So it, it's, it There's is, not enough of them in Florida. Yeah, un unfortunately, Florida, like I said, the, the region, just it's not real, it's not real susceptible to, to growing grapes for wine. Um, you can do the muscadine grape, but, uh, but I think a lot of people that like wine and are really, really into it, they, for whatever reason... It's not very well received. It's got a little bit more of a sweeter tone to it, a little bit earthier, um, and we tried that. But the natural wine is worldwide. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. I've got just a few questions that I wanted to, that I jotted down before you came. Sure. Let me, let me work through a couple of these, see if we've tackled them. Oh, we never really got into, so you come from a smaller town in Virginia, your dad uh, in the masonry industry, and then you go military. What even... What prompted you into entrepreneurialism and business ownership? You know, I've never been asked that question. And now that I'm sitting here, reflect, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think that now that I'm reflecting on it, maybe it was that my father was an entrepreneur. You know, I remember seeing him. He would, you know, he'd be gone before the sun rose out, uh, you know, working his subcontracting. He'd come back when the sun was already set. And then he'd spend his evenings with his glasses on in his office doing all of his accounting and bookkeeping. He was the, he wore every hat for his business. And I think I respected that. Um, and who knows? I mean, I think that maybe that uh, kind of conditioned me to want to do the same thing. That's excellent. Yeah. Very good answer. Um, 
whether foreseen or unforeseen, uh, what were some of the biggest challenges in getting your your tap room town beer shop off off and running? The biggest challenges, I would say, just not understanding the bureaucratic process. Um, and it's funny now. I don't know if we've told our viewers yet. I think you opened it up. We're both commissioners for the city of Jacksonville. Um, but the the most difficult part, which is why I have such a soft place in my heart for for small businesses that are coming through the planning commission, I understand how difficult it is and how daunting it is. And I remember, you know, we felt like we were so close to opening up and then we'd get an inspection that says, oh, you know what? None of this is right. You actually need to rip that out and go back. Who's your general con? You don't have a general contractor. You got to get a general contract. So all these things just kept putting us in a, you know, we'd have to 180, go back, hire somebody for a crazy rate because they knew, look, you're trying, let me, let me step back a little bit and, and preface this with this. Priya and I did almost 100% of the build out ourselves. Um, so when it came time to plumbing, trenching the floor for plumbing, we didn't realize you have to have a licensed plumber to do that in the state of Florida. So we'd have to go hire a licensed plumber, get the licensed plumber in there. They'd start going to town. Inspector comes by, you got to have a permit. Oh, well, what do I got to do to pull a permit? You have to have a general contractor to pull a permit. So we got the plumber, we got the general contractor who charges double, whatever the permit costs, he charges double. That's his margin. Um, we had to get a licensed electrician to put all to run all of our conduits and, and get all of our lighting rocking and rolling. So everything except for permit pulling, plumbing, and electrical, we did ourselves. But the bureaucratic process of pulling permits, uh, getting exceptions for your zoning, uh, administrative deviations for parking, that was so daunting and so intimidating to us. Because not only were we almost ready to rock and roll, but then you'd file these applications and you get put on a two-month wait list. And then you go before a board where you're, you're not guaranteed to get approved. And you've already, picture this, you've already sunk 20, 30 grand into your build-out and they might tell you no. And then you're dead in the water. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So it, was, it felt like standing on the edge of a bridge and getting ready to jump off of it. You, it, it, was, it was truly, it felt like a leap of faith. Um, and, th and there were several situations where you just had to, you just had to suck it up and, and just be tough about going before boards and, and, uh, dealing with the time that it takes. I'd say that was the biggest issue, biggest challenge. I had another question written down, looking back, what would you do differently? And, and there might be something outside of the real estate side, but it sounds like if you had your druthers and you could just restructure you would probably consult people to make sure you have your quote unquote entitlements, meaning your deviation or zoning or waivers of distance, Absolutely. get all that done before the, the hard costs start really, you know, you're not putting up tire, you're not building bars, you don't have non-refundable money to the best of your ability. Right. I do feel for those that are trying to launch, it's a little different. Like I do real estate projects, but you're trying to launch an active business within real estate. So you're like, I don't own the building. Right. I've got to do this trenching get these variances, these waivers, these administrative deviations. I got to time it all just right. I got to negotiate with the landlord when my rent is actually due. So there's quite a few things to juggle and, sure. you, and you figured it out on, all on your own. Yeah. I mean, uh, we, we really relied on just being extremely organized because things can, can fall apart quickly if you just think you can fly by the seat of your pants and get this stuff done. Um, yeah. I mean, if I, if I could go back, what I would do to make, make this a little bit smoother and now knowing what I know, I wouldn't have to consult or, or seek consultants to help us. But if I could go back, very first project, what I would do is have a, uh, a consultant who's been in this industry before to help us with the whole legal process downtown. I would probably have a general contractor run a diagnostic on the entire location to make sure it's suitable for what we're lo looking to do. Um, something that we really ran into with plumbing is that and I didn't realize this at the time. Plumbing is pretty primitive. It's it's gravity fed, you know. So if you've got your if you've got your sink draining into the floor, you have to have the right amount of fall to your run because it's gravity fed, you know. So we ended up we didn't realize this. The main the main sewage plumbing was forty something feet away from where we had positioned our sinks in our behind our bar. And you're not on a hill. 
We're not on a hill. So for 40-something feet, we only had like two inches of fall. That's not enough fall. So uh, one of the biggest issues was we had to install an up pump. So all of our behind-the-bar plumbing runs into a uh, reservoir and gets pumped up through the rafters in the, root, in the ceiling and then down into the main. So if I could go back, a simple plumber to come in and do a diagnostic, they run a snake down one of your drains and they tell you where your main is and they tell you what you're looking at. This would have helped me with, with, our, with our floor plan. I could have laid it out differently so that any of our indirect plumbing would have, would have been closer to the main. Yeah, so I guess, you know, I, I get so long-winded on my answers. Um, I would go back and have diagnostics of the entire, the, the, uh, the perspective location. I would have that absolutely uh, uh, ran through and had a diagnostic on it. And then possibly a, a real estate consultant to help us with getting through the rigmarole downtown, if you will. Um, this touches on just a couple of things. One is the law of the first deal. This is you, This was your first deal. And you've learned so much from this deal, invaluable, enough you could probably go triple the length of this conversation. And you don't learn these lessons until you actually go through it. It's like going through the looking glass. So right. now you know if you had to open 20 more town beers in the next 20 months, it might be easier than getting the first one done. Right. You know, I'm not saying it would be easy. No, yeah. But it's like you could literally just, you know the floor plan, you like, how many square feet do I need? Where are my lines? Your diagnostic on the building. And you would probably put a very similar floor plan in all these spaces and you could just expand through a region if that was your calling. Sure. So that law of the first deal is important. I think a lot of people, they might reach out to me or people in, in our in our seats and say, man, I love what you're doing. I just, I'm not really sure how to get involved. I'm, I'm hesitant to take the first step. I usually encourage people to, w within reason, take that calculated risk because there are so many lessons you cannot, I, I love this podcast, I love my interviews, but you cannot glean from a podcast, you cannot glean from Instagram, you cannot glean from YouTube. Um, you're going to have to go ahead and feel the risk and the gravity and go for it. That's all, it. all I would say is try to hedge that to the best of your ability so you don't go belly up, but hedge to the best of your ability and you got to go for it. You know, sure. I think the most important word, and it's a short one, in all entrepreneurial pursuits is do, D-O. Yeah. And you just have to get going. Right. Absolutely. And, and I, I think it's important to do your due diligence. You know, don't, don't just dive into an industry that you know nothing about because I've heard some of your past episodes and some of the entrepreneurs you've had. Um, sometimes you do hear folks, they'll sit at your bar and they'll look around and they'll say to their significant other, they'll say, we should do this, you know? And at first, that's it was it was kind of insulting to us to hear that. Now it to me it's uh, and this is Lauren from Brewhound mm -hmm. touched on this. It's 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 a compliment. It's the it's the highest compliment. If you can sit at my bar and look around and and I've made it look easy and you think you can reproduce it very quickly and and seamlessly, that's a compliment. Um, I think that one of the biggest things is and I did this. You, you need to get in the trenches. Learn the industry that you're looking to get into. Don't just get on YouTube and think that you can jump right into real estate or think that you can jump right into craft beer. You can't be working and, you know, you can't be an accountant and just think you're going to brew beer for a living. You know, go volunteer at a brewery, learn how to package the product, learn what goes into it, learn the blood, sweat, and tears that's in the industry, and then do it. If you feel confident, you've got the experience and the knowledge, do it. Because there does come a time where, you know, you've, you've got, you can only get so much knowledge, you can only get so much mentorship, and you just have to dive right in. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of people, the fear is going to feel just as real. For those that are just listening and not watching, you can't see my hands, but I'm, I'm putting them way out wide. Like, the fear of all this broad unknown is intimidating. Well, you learn, and you podcast, and you watch these YouTubes, and you talk to others, and you go to me. Well, now I'm shrinking my hands together. Now you've got this narrow risk. You've kind of like cut off all the rough edges. Guess what? Psychologically, that narrow risk is probably going to feel just as daunting as the one that was really broad. Yeah. All I'm getting at is these are reasons why until you, like look what Alex did, you know, with the Veterans United from the from the tap room to the brew to the sales to his MBA to getting his place launched and getting through the local zoning process and negotiating with the landlord and figuring out how to run wastewater lines into the ceiling and out to the 50 foot far away wastewater line. These are all things that that is your story and you earn that story. Yeah. And I think for people that want to be entrepreneurs or business owners, 
um, you're going to have to earn your own stories, you yeah, know, absolutely. And, and not everybody, and let's be honest, it's arduous. And I think that resiliency and problem solving thematically comes up in so many of these interviews. Like if someone's like, I really want to do this. Well, they could be really well resumed, great ideas. But what I'd be more concerned about is like how resilient and how good they are like pivoting. Are they good problem solvers? Are they resourceful? Because those skills to me are, they far exceed do I know the most about my industry? Sure. No, 100%. I think that, um, you know, I, I've been chatting with you a lot. Um, you know, town, we are fortunate enough to say at this point is self-sufficient. We are fully staffed. Um, our team is amazing. They've carried us through the pandemic. Uh, Priya and myself really reeled back once we discovered we were expecting last year. Um, and our team, they are they are so dependable and we, we owe so much thanks to them. Um, but yeah, I, I think that uh, I think that resilience is uh, is number one, and being a problem solver with my business, uh, being self sufficient. I've been chatting with you a lot lately. I'm trying to get back into the workforce. Uh, never want to rest on my laurels. I want to take my experiences and roll them into something to keep developing myself professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the biggest things I've been mentioning during my interview process is that as a small business owner, you have to be a master critical thinker. You have to be a master problem solver, and you have to be resilient. You truly do. I mean, you don't have a chain of command. If you've got a plumbing leak, you're now a plumber. Congratulations. You better figure it out. If, if you've got an electrical issue, you got to figure it out. You can't turn to your manager and say, hey, issue on aisle 10, handle it. I'll, I'll be doing my job. That's not my job. You know what I mean? Yeah. You Shift's have to, over. I'm punching out. I'm leaving. You nope. have to figure it out. And I mean, if it happens at 2 a.m., you have to figure it out. It's around the clock, you know, so... I've been truly leaning on that, letting letting interviewers know that it's it's uh, you know although I'm in the beer industry, it has given me some of the most valuable lessons I've ever learned in my life. It truly has. Well, aside from being able to drink delicious beer, more or less whenever you like, I know you have to keep it together. <laughs> what has been the most rewarding element? I mean, in my opinion, you know, town could who knows town could be in every city. It, it's it's so good, and your brand is so tight. I think sky's the limit, but what to this date has been the most rewarding element of, of your effort with Town Beer? I think I touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, Priya and myself, I would consider our, ourselves introverts, both of us. Um, and it's, it's uh, you kind of have to flip the switch and be a people person when you're behind the bar. Um, I would say the most rewarding thing, we didn't have a huge social network before opening this bar. And now I think that everyone who's close to us these days... Um, everyone who we consider fr- friends and family came 100% out of Town Beer Company. Um, so the most rewarding part that we've experienced through uh, entrepreneurship is just gaining a huge friend group that we consider family. Honest to God, um, anyone who comes in that place, we get to know them and we consider them friends and family. That is such a cool answer, and I'm a little bit green with envy because my I'm more of a considerate like a, like a hardcore real estate type culture and. Well, that's all good, but you know, I could sit and interview and talk about dozens or hundreds of units, or, or bring somebody on with thousands of units and this amount of cash flow. It can still be like you're working in a silo. Sure. I could still go right to my desk. No one knows what I'm doing. Right. It doesn't feel necessarily like a team sport. A lot of days, you might not have someone to co-celebrate your victories. Right. And I certainly, I could never say what you just said. Uh, I met my core sphere of influence and friends and family. Through, through through work, through work. so right. now part of that honestly I probably could do a little better job of that but there's no way I would I'll always pale in comparison to what you just said and I think when I like when I interviewed Lauren with Brewhound and and even even a little bit of Brock's Fishweir like there's certain industries where one of the great you know fulfillments is community and sure. relationships and um, it's wonderful in my opinion, assuming this is part of what you want, but it's wonderful when you can bring in all these interpersonal relationships in your entrepreneurial pursuits and not just, you know, work in a tower by yourself and, and, you know, shared experience is everything. Right. And I really, and I agree in my opinion, you're like a local celebrity. I'm thrilled you came oh, on the show. Gosh, you, come on. I knew you wouldn't like that, but you are, you're a local <laughs> celebrity and you're, you're a wonderful guy. I'm happy to be on Thank you. Planning commission with you, and and I met you through Town Beer. So yeah, that just yeah. as an example, just to reiterate what you said, you and I met because you opened Town Beer. Right. I'm peeking in your storefront glass, shaking your hand when you're still doing tile. So yeah. um, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, 
you might laugh at this one. Alex is wearing a hat. Most people aren't watching this interview, but I'll go ahead and chop this up and throw some stuff on Instagram. I won't ask you to take off the hat, but you have the best hair of, 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 of any male that I spend any time with. So, oh, my gosh. So the audience knows I want to close with this very serious question. That, that's a pay-per-view if you yeah. want to see the hair. I, I, don't, I think it's not a toupee. I think it's real. I've never tugged on it. Um, but how do you get that hair so perfect? I don't know. I think it's uh, it's my dad's side of the family. It's Italian, Romanian. We just have very, very thick hair. And I have this vision of like Priya holding like two hair dryers. There's like a, a curled roller, some Aquanet. I don't know the combination. I didn't but want to tell my perfect. secret, but it's, it's Priya <laughs> with the two hair dryers. That's what. All right. Perfect. <laughs> All right. As you can tell, we're starting to get to the tail end here. Alex, where can people find you? How do you like to be contacted? Where are you on social media? What would you like to share? Our biggest platform's Instagram, uh, and it's simple, Town Beer Co. on Instagram. We're also on Facebook, Town Beer Co. Uh, our website's townbeerco.com. If you're looking to find us physically, we are uh, at the intersection of Edgewood and Mayflower in the Murray Hill community. Wonderful. Yeah. All right, and I, re I do recommend you guys reach out. He has a great uh, social presence, and you got to go by that tap room and, and enjoy a local Florida craft beer or natural wine or cider or seltzer. Please, yeah, 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 you got a little bit of everything. Certainly. I think you even have cans of sardines now, so, I mean, yeah. you, can, you can get a little crazy in there. That's right. Well, I've really enjoyed this. Alex, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, sir. Um, if you guys enjoyed the show, go ahead and subscribe and rate us. We love the ratings, trying to boost ourselves up. Like I've been saying, maybe one day we'll even get a sponsor. Maybe, maybe Town Beer Co. There we go. Today was sponsored by... Lazy River. Cheers, <laughs> Cheers man. Me. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate uh, it. As always, you can you can find us on Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, and um, really enjoyed this one. We'll keep you posted on Instagram with anything coming up. And as always, I'm inviting you all to lace up and leave it all on the field. You'll coach out. Thank you.